Evidently, the great Apostle Paul believed that gardens and buildings had a lot in common with a church because he loved to use these metaphors to confront us about some strategic points when it comes to nurturing spiritual seed or constructing the house of God. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, as he reviews where we have been and focuses our attention on some weeds and some construction errors that could destroy the most beautiful of churches. That church could be your own. Last week we began a study on church demolition, the cure for church demolition, and how to be able to protect our own church family from falling into the trap of taking a wrecking ball and destroying the church of God. Basically, the major thrust that we focused on is the fact that preacher worship, the worship of men, the worship of gifted teachers, will demolish a church. It demolishes the preacher themselves, but it also demolishes those that are following them. The Corinthians were guilty of preacher worship. One group was saying, I follow Paul. Another group said, I follow Peter. Another group said, I follow the eloquence of Apollos. And it was that pride in men, rather than boasting and focusing on the living Lord Jesus Christ, that was destroying the church of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul, almost with tears in his eyes, said, I can't teach you as spiritually mature people because there's jealousy and there's discord. There's a party spirit in the church of Corinth. Rather than being able to rejoice in all the teachers that the Lord had given the Corinthians, they were pridefully boasting about their own little group. We try to apply that in a bigger context in our own day. And I challenge you just to be thankful for all the gifted biblical teachers that we have in the church in the United States and literally around the world. I think in some ways you could say that the Holy Spirit has moved in His church more in the evangelical church today that we have more opportunity through the media, through radio, through TV, through, the public, uh, through publications, more opportunity to have access to excellent, skillful teaching. And rather than saying, I'm of this teacher I'm of, or I'm of that teacher, we all need to refocus again and say, I am a Christ follower. I adore, I boast about I live for the living person of Christ. Now as we move in this chapter to verse 10, the Apostle Paul begins to talk and he changes the figure. The figure we looked at was the figure of the church as being like a field or like a vineyard, you might say. And the Apostle Paul talked about himself being a planter, someone who sowed the gospel in Corinth. And then Apollos came along and nourished the crop. And, and took the weeds away and fertilized it and helped it to grow strong. He changes the figure and he does it in verse 9. He says, we are God's fellow workers. Fellow workers in God's field. But then he talks about being a builder in God's building. Paul loves to do this. He loves to shift from one metaphor to the next. In fact, they did this in ancient Jewish literature in Qumran. This same kind of of metaphor was used of the people of God being like a field that needs to be well cared for. Jesus Christ himself would talk about the, the field in which the wheat and the tares were sown. The Apostle Paul developed that metaphor a little bit further. But now he talks about a building. 
And a lot of you have worked in construction. Some of you worked in construction in the past, and things haven't been so good for us in that area. But we've got a lot of knowledge about building. When I came to Midlothian, I didn't have any idea what a foundation was, what was inside the wall, but I can't say that anymore because ever since we came to this town, we've been working on buildings. Somehow, some way, we've been working on buildings. So we've learned a lot about laying foundations and then putting up a superstructure and then finishing it off. Well, Paul starts to use that figure of erecting a building to talk to us about what we're doing as a local church. Look at it in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, as an expert master craftsman, you might say, as an expert cathedral builder is the image. And someone else is building on it. I laid a foundation, but now somebody else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now many questions are raised as we read these verses, and let's begin by just trying to focus on this foundation. The focus of these verses begins with a focus on the foundation. The Apostle Paul says that he laid a proper foundation. And as he begins to develop this idea of a foundation, he begins with the word grace. By the grace that God has given me, I laid the foundation. The Apostle Paul was probably the most spiritually gifted man that ever ministered in local churches. The Lord had saw fit in the first century to just empower this man. But the Apostle Paul, if he were here today, would be the very first man to say that it was not because I was a brilliant rabbi, it was not because I worked harder than anybody else, it was not because of my own natural gifts. It wasn't because of my university training, it wasn't because of my birth. We learn in the book of Philippians that the Apostle Paul considered all that rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that's why the Apostle Paul begins, as he starts to talk to the Corinthians about his work among them, he says, what I was able to do among you, I did by grace. Now what does that mean? It means that God freely chose, not because Paul deserved it, not because he earned it, not because Paul did anything significant to achieve it, but totally as a free choice of God, the Apostle Paul was gifted as an apostle. On the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul was saved and commissioned in a moment of time. God zapped Paul out of heaven as a total free act of grace. It was a gift. Now I want you to think very deeply about it because the foundation of our church needs to be grace. 
And one of the things that I covet for every single one of you is that you would rejoice, first of all, in the fact that you've received the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of being a child of God, and it's exactly that. It's a gift. And that's the hardest thing for us to understand. Almost all of us have a hard time receiving gifts. I heard of some pastors over in Mansfield that tried to take some things to families. And the families were desperately in need. They really needed the food that was being graciously offered. There were no strings attached at all, but the families turned them down. You know why? Because it's hard to receive a free gift. You know why? Because we have to be humble. We have to put aside our pride. You see, all of us have the idea, I'm going to make it myself. I can do it. I can build this church. I can live the Christian life. I can build my individual family. I can build my business. The hardest thing for us to do is to admit I'm weak. I can't make it. I'm not going to be able to achieve what God requires for me to achieve. I'm not going to be able to be righteous in my own strength. And you have to humble your heart. But one of the greatest, greatest thrills is that unbelievable recognition that I'm forgiven totally as a free gift. And the Apostle Paul is saying, by the grace that was given to me, he began the book by talking to the Corinthians about thanking God for the grace that was bestowed upon them. And as I look around this audience, I see a lot of saved people. As I look around the audience, a lot of you have given your personal testimony to me. You've told me, maybe you don't remember the exact moment, but you know that you're trusting in what Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. You know that your sins are forgiven. And I want you to rest in that. I want you to have the joy of that. One of the hardest things for us to do is to rest in the fact that God unconditionally loves us. Now, you've heard that from me a million times. In fact, if I go home to be with the Lord, anyone that does my funeral, I hope they'll pray, they'll say, David proclaimed the grace, the amazing grace of God. But I want you to be thrilled from that. I want you to rejoice in that. And Paul is talking about that grace that he received when he was born again. But in this context, he goes on to talk about another grace, the grace of giftedness. The Apostle Paul is saying he was gifted as an evangelist, as a church founder, as someone that could go into an area and proclaim the gospel. And the Holy Spirit would cause people to believe through him, and a church would grow. The Apostle Paul is saying, I didn't earn that. It was given me by grace. Many of you feel like, I can't serve God. I think one of the most deadly emotions, one of the most deadly feelings, is that you feel, well, I just don't measure up. I'm not good enough for God to use me. I'm not good enough to do anything in God's family. Those are all the lies of the evil one. Every one of you, by grace, not because you've earned it, not because you pray long enough, not because you discipline yourself hard enough, but as a free gift of grace, the Holy Spirit, the moment you were born again, endowed you with an ability to build God's family. Every one of you are in a body, and you are a functioning part of that body, and you have the capabilities, you have the abilities to build the family of God. You need to rejoice in that. And we'll talk more as we go through the book 
about how we discern our gift. But one of the most important things in discerning your gift is to realize that you're part of the body, you can function within the body, and as you try functioning, you find out that there's some things you do. Maybe it's hospitality. Maybe it's teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe it's helping with practical affairs like building. Maybe it's planning things, retreats, whatever it might be. Maybe it's visiting older folks over in, in the rest home. Maybe it's visiting in the hospital. Maybe it's the gift of giving. Maybe you just make gallons of money. We all wish we had that gift from time to time. But the Bible talks about that being a spiritual gift. A special ability from the Holy Spirit, the blessing of God upon our lives in all those different areas that I just mentioned for us to meet one another's needs. And it's all by grace. And that's the way our church family needs to respond. Never motivating out of guilt, never trying to get you to do things that you're really not gifted to do. There's nothing worse than someone that's not gifted to serve in a certain area doing it because, oh, someone's got to do it. In fact, one of the most exciting things to me is as I've traveled recently, one pastor after another says, we can't get anybody to take leadership responsibility. We can't get anybody to help in Awana. We can't get anybody to teach Sunday school. We can't get anybody to help in the nursery. Nobody will clean the church. Nobody will do anything. I'll say, well, it might have to do with the fact that you've got 15 paid staff members on your team. And you've totally convinced everybody that you have to have a pro to do it. And I'm so thankful for a church family where it's not hard to get you to use your gifts. And all we want to grow in that, and the way to grow in that is to relax into recognizing I'm gifted by God, by the grace that was given to me. One person's an evangelist. We all share the gospel, but some of us will be specially gifted to cause people to hear the gospel and be born again. Some of us are edifiers. Some of us are exhorters. And the Lord's going to weld all that together to build this family. Now, what's the foundation of it all? What do we use these gifts to build upon? The foundation in verse 11 is this. Look at it carefully. The Apostle Paul in verse 10 said, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building upon I want to catch one thing more before we move on to verse 11. I want you to notice that there's no false humility in the Apostle Paul. Don't you love it? You know, you have some people that talk about, oh, I can't do anything and I'm humble pie. I love the Apostle Paul. He says, by the grace that was given to me, I was a skillful master craftsman. The Apostle Paul was here to be no Uriah Heap kind of humility. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, do you know what you're doing in building a church? He would say, yes, I do. Do you do it well? Yes, I do. You think you're doing something that's going to have eternal significance? Yes, I do. Is it because of you, Paul? Absolutely not. Not because of me at all. I'm totally dependent upon my Lord, but the Lord has gifted me. And he's got that marvelous balance of confidence in the giftedness of the Holy Spirit within him, and yet total dependence upon the Lord. Now, how can we lay a skillful foundation? Well, the foundation is already laid. This is so simple, and it's so clear that it's one of those things that us as human beings forget. Because churches that start just like ours, with the same kind of dynamic that we have, the same kind of purposes, move off this foundation. Now what is the foundation? He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid. It already stands 
laid in history. Now, what is it? It's Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds like such a simple statement. But you know what it's saying? You know, you can build churches on a lot of things. You can build churches on all kinds of ideas. You can build churches on all kinds of dynamics. You can build them on a personality. You can build it on a philosophy. You can build it on a new psychology. You can build churches a lot of different ways. But you can't build the church on any other foundation than the person of Jesus Christ. And I want every one of you to realize, when I use the phrase Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about a symbol. I'm not talking about a symbol of love. I'm not talking about a gooey feeling that it's kind of mushy in my soul. I'm talking about a commitment to a living, honest-to-goodness, alive person. And that's very important. I want you just to stop and think about that. One second into eternity, I believe I will see a person. One second into eternity, I believe I will be hugged to a person's side. A very dynamic, the most unbelievable man that ever lived, the God-man. A man who was fully God and fully man. It's not just orthodox faith, it is my commitment of life. I haven't seen him yet with my eyes. I haven't heard his voice yet with my ears. At times I have questions, at times I have doubt, but the foundation of my life is that I have committed my life with Mary, with our family, that I believe that there is a historical person who lived on this planet just as certainly as I live on this planet. And he did open the eyes of the blind, he did raise the dead, and he did hang on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins. It's an old story, but I believe it's a true story. I don't understand all the significance of why God had him die, why God made it that plan. I can teach you as I'm learning, and the Word of God is helping us to grow on that understanding, but I know that the Word of God says that the just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement to cover my sins. I don't understand exactly all the implications of why God the Father said this is the way that forgiveness will be won. But I don't set up the rules. I don't decide how you are forgiven. I don't decide how you go to heaven. What I proclaim to you is the truth that God revealed you can go to heaven by believing in that historical person who gave his life for you. And three days later he rose again from the dead. And I believe that in history, in space, time, and history, Jesus Christ, the same one that was born of the Virgin Mary, the same one that lived on this earth, the same one that died on the cross for my sins, I believe that he rose again from the dead. Now that's not a story. It's not just a good philosophy. There's two kinds of people. Some of you believe that's true. And I've committed my life to that. I'm building my whole human existence on that. That's what I'm trusting in. If I go home into eternity, that's the Savior that will get me there. And there's another group. 
And you might know all these facts over here, but it's just a story to you. It's just like a philosophy. It's just an idea. And you're not on the foundation. You really haven't made it your own. And you were willing to interact with you about your questions. I want you to feel free to ask questions, to bring up your doubts, for us to interact together. But what I want you to recognize is that God in heaven, the Lord God in heaven, if you'll humble yourself and just open your personality to the truth, the Lord God of heaven will move mightily in your heart and cause you to believe. In a split second of time, you'll move from human dependence to Christ's dependence. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Savior, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament is the foundation of Midlothian Bible Church. I want you to be praying all during the week. Lord Jesus, help us to gather together and praise Him. You see, as I'm talking to you right now, some of you are entering into that. Deep in your heart, I can see it in your eyes. You say, boy, I'm just so thankful for that. And in your own heart, you, you think back over your life and you can remember a time when you didn't know Christ. You remember what it was like to be lost. You remember what it was like not to be certain about your eternal life. You remember going to other church families where they really didn't tell you the truth of the gospel. They talked to you about good works. They talked to you about joining an organization. They talked to you about all kinds of civic responsibilities. But they never told you about the living, historical person of Christ. But now you've heard the truth, and the truth has set you free. I just would covet that peace, that joy, that confidence that comes from that unseen faith, believing the promise of God. If anyone is in him, they become a new creation. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe in his name, that's what Paul means when he says the foundation of the church, of a local church and of the universal church, is none other than a person. Not a philosophy, not a special knowledge, but a relationship with a living person. Now with that as the foundation, building upon grace, we receive salvation totally freely, we receive our giftedness to serve in God's family freely, and the foundation of it all is the person of Christ. The Lord talked in verses 12 through 15 about a reward. He's talking specifically to church leaders, but we all have responsibilities to be building up one another. So we all need to take heed from verse 12. Now with the foundation laid, the next verses will talk about building upon this foundation of Christ Jesus. If anyone build on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. The Apostle Paul is talking to the leadership of the Corinthian church. He laid a foundation. Apollos came and built skillfully upon Paul's foundation. But now another group of teachers have started to build upon the foundation. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is talking about believing teachers. These teachers do know Christ in a personal way. They do believe in the gospel of God's grace. But as they begin to mature as a church, as they begin to grow, human factors start to enter in. They're beginning to trust in human wisdom. They're beginning to like the acclaim. 
You see, when you first start a church family, they throw rocks at you. People don't trust you. When you're just meeting with an itsy-bitsy little group of people, people think you're really weird. Those people that take this Jesus thing seriously, they're kind of fanatics. But as you grow and the blessing of God is upon the group, the Lord produces growth. He produces growth in people. He produces growth in numbers. He produces growth financially. He produces growth in building. Because God is a God of building and creation. But what can easily start to happen is that pride starts to infect the group. And the teachers begin to say, well, that old-fashioned rugged cross, that's a little bit offensive. The idea of a bloody sacrifice for our sins that's not going to cut the upper crust people that are, that are starting to be attracted to our group. And after all, we want to be sure that we can keep things going. In the, in the Sunday school, we'll talk about the gospel. Sunday morning, we'll make it just a little bit more vanilla. A little bit more easy. Instead of having line upon line, letting a man just teach what the Word of God teaches, wherever that might take us, a church begin to trust in their own wisdom. In our culture of narrow specialization, mushrooming higher education, and technological sophistication, it is easy to begin to rely upon our own wisdom when it comes to the task of building a church. Our focus can be on our programs instead of on the sacrifice savior. It can be on our printouts of donor potential instead of the power of the empty tomb. If we make success in numbers, facilities, and finances the bottom line in our church growth courses, we could end up building something completely different than Christ's true church. The warnings of the Apostle Paul thundered down through time. There is only one foundation, and Jesus Christ alone is that foundation. Our prayer is that this study of 1 Corinthians will encourage thousands of pastors and their people as they seek to build the true house of God composed of all who genuinely trust in Christ's death and in His resurrection.